Rogue Radio. Now available on Mixcloud at mixcloud.com forward slash rogue country. Keep it rogue. Hey guys, welcome to episode 18 of Into the Van. I'm Mike West and I'm so excited about this episode. You really don't know how much this episode and this guest means to me. With this podcast, I've got the chance and I've been lucky enough to talk to these artists that I really respect and a lot of artists that I personally don't know, but they still take a chance and are generous enough with their time to say yes and come chat with me for an hour about music and, you know, all my weird little questions and things. I cannot thank every single artist who's been on this podcast so far enough for being so generous with their time. Today is Ben Kaplan. I'm a huge fucking huge Ben Kaplan fan I first found him with the Birds with Broken Wings album I found him on YouTube and he just has this gravitas and theatricality and presence to him that is so captivating and I was hooked straight away so the fact that he agreed to do this I was so made up and it was one of the podcasts I was most nervous for because you know with the artist that I know personally or you know I've got a bit of history with I've got that familiarity with them going in cold with these Zoom calls. It's a different beast and this is a brilliant podcast. I'm so happy with it. So before we get into that, as always, we are brought to you by the Next Life, my debut album. I'm super fucking proud of this record and I really hope you give it a chance. I've been blown away by the reviews and the reception of it by people. So I'm going to drop a track in here now. Don't do like I've done, say a father to son, and live this worldly view cold. Do what you can and love what you do, for it's a long and lonely road. It's a long and lonely road. It's a long and lonely road. and i really hope you dig it i really hope if you haven't listened to it or you haven't heard my music please go check it out it's something that i you know invested a lot of time and energy into it's something that's got you know i wore my heart and my sleeve for this record and i put everything into it as a musician should and this is the hill i'm gonna die on for the foreseeable future so love it or hate it this is my album that i am gonna be plugging and pushing as much as i can but I really hope you dig it. I really hope you dig the podcast that we're doing now with Ben Kaplan. You know, Into the Van has been a fun journey for me and it's been a real grounding point and, you know, a way to keep my sanity during this lockdown and this pandemic. So if you do enjoy Into the Van, please go leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or ACAS or wherever you listen to it because that all apparently helps. But without further ado, this is a podcast with the mighty Ben Kaplan, who I'm a huge fucking fan of. He's a Canadian musician who is just, you know, he's put the hours in. He has grounded it out and he is a musician you should love and respect. And you need to go listen to his albums as soon as this podcast is over because he has a wealth of experience and talent that you just need to listen to. So, episode 18 of Into the Van with Mike West and Ben Kaplan. Welcome to Into the Van with me, Mike West. Cool, so thank you so much for um, joining us today. And I just wanted to kind of, I really love your style. Like I've been a big fan of your work for ages. And the interesting thing I found was I first heard you with the Birds with Broken Wings album. And the first video I ever saw of you, I think it was you playing in a park in Germany doing the title track. And you mm-hmm. do this thing to the guitar that still makes me like cringe to this day where you hit the chord and bend the neck. Yes. <laughs> like, did you ever go too far on that guitar and snap the neck off or is it just like... It's never happened yet, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I've tried that. I've tried that with a, with a whole bunch of guitars. <laughs> they're, they're, they're typically built fairly robustly. Yeah. That's thing I've, uh, I've definitely, I've had a guitar in my hands before, actually, now that I think about it, where I like, I went to go do that thing and I just could feel the guitar disliking what I was doing and I immediately mm. stopped. But yeah. And what's your go-to like guitar of choice? Cause that was a guild in the video, was it? I believe. 
Yeah, so I, I tour with two acoustic guitars and they're both guilds. Uh, they're both guild jumbos. And, uh, you know, if, if for me, I was, I was looking around for guitars. I don't have any, you know, brand loyalty per se. I'm not much of a gear nerd, but mm. um, I was just, you know, holding different guitars in my hands and playing them. And I, and I picked up this guild, which was probably one of the cheaper guitars in the, in the room that I was in. Um, and I was mostly in that room just to see what I couldn't afford. Uh, but then there was this guild that was sort of just prob probably just above what I thought I was going to spend on my next guitar. And it was like that scene from Harry Potter where he picks up his mm. wand. You know what I mean? It, it was just um, it was just mine. And then the, the guitar that I play now, I was actually looking for the B guitar so that I would have another guitar on stage in case I ever broke a string. And I, I, I stumbled into a little um, guitar shop in, in Manhattan um, and found what turned out to be my new A guitar. It just was like similar to the first guild, but like even better. And so mm. that's, that's how I wound up with those. Yeah. Was it like just, cause for me, when I was going for an acoustic guitar, I started off in like rock and metal bands. So I had like a flying V and a Fender. And I went through all those phases. So acoustic guitars have such like a distinct sound to them. And what I got is a, what's behind me. I have two Epiphone EL 00 pros. And for me, that was kind of like the guitar that just fits. And it's such a weird think because you think acoustics is just acoustics but you've got like the dreadnoughts the jumbos the you know the parlor guitars and it, there's such a specific sound and obviously with your kind of stuff do you change guitars on like the records do you have specific ones for specific sounds for when you're actually recording or is it just straight to the jumbos uh straight to the jumbos i mean it's it's um I'm, I'm making a record right now and I am working with some different guitars because the record that i'm making now is is a much more stripped back acoustic sound and so the the guitar is going to be much more uh of a character in the mix um and so it, it has become a bit more of a like interesting project to find the right guitar for each tune um and even like treating the guitarist and putting little bits of foam to adapt the overtones and resonant frequencies mm. um so th that's a thing that i'm sort of experimenting with now but um no, I mean, I've, as far as I'm concerned, like th those Guild guitars, they have a, a really lovely and warm uh, low end, really nice bottom end. Um, and just in terms of my own playing style, they're, they're really heavily, they're probably overbuilt. And I, I tend to play fairly aggressively. Mm. And um, I find they, they really keep up with me. They push back a little bit, which I really like. Cool, man. And how far along into this new record are you? Uh, I would say that I'm like maybe a third of the way through making the thing, something like mm. that. Cool, man, because I'd love to talk about your process a bit because you had, like, Bears with Broken Wings, that was 2015. Mm -hmm. And you, before that, you had In the Time of the Great Remembering. Was, right, there, yeah. was there an approach at all between those albums? Because I want to get into old stock as well, but that's a bigger process, I think. With those first two albums, was there like a writing style or a kind of mindset that you went in with those? Because one of your interesting things, I think, is you add like not necessarily non-conventional instruments where you had like clarinets and it's more like operatic in nature, I think. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, when I, the, the first album uh, in the time of the great remembering, you know, that represented sort of the culmination of, you know, 10 years of writing songs and gigging and experimenting. And, you know, when I, when I moved to my, my new city of residence, Halifax, um, you know, I, I was starting university in that city and, and just in a phase of artistic experimentation. And, you know, I was lucky that the people around me were also in that same place. You know, it wasn't, wasn't like the, everybody needs to get paid to go play a gig. Mm -hmm. People were just excited to play music. So I was experimenting a lot with a lot of other hobbyists and musicians. I probably played with about 60 uh, different instrumentalists, um, not different instruments per se, but, you know, I was working with a trumpet player and a cellist and a violinist. And then I tried working with a sax player and a clarinet and all of these different sounds and, and approaches and styles and personalities. And it was through that process that I began to eventually really find my voice. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of the, the music that I was interested in from a, you know, the standpoint of Eastern European folk music, which is a, a well that I drink from quite a lot, um, the violin and the clarinet are two instruments that blend really beautifully together and that have a, a long history of, of working together. Um, and so that wound up being something that I, you know, whittled towards as, mm. as the process went on. Cool, man. And with those like early influences, what would you say were your most like defining artists or genres that you were like listening to growing up? And then when you started writing your own stuff, who was kind of 
you know the ones you had on repeat or the ones you were trying to like emulate or pay homage to yeah um i mean my my musical awakening as a as a writer i think was probably um thanks to bob dylan mm. he's a major influence in my in my early years in particular um and you know he sort of like led me into the american folk revival artists like uh well actually two canadian artists neil young and, and Joni mitchell um, but who were deeply involved in that scene. I got into, um, I, mean, I was really into Paul Simon, like Simon and Garfunkel as well, but also the, the breadth and the depth of, of the different styles that Paul Simon explores in his work was, was mm. definitely inspirational for me. Um, and um, I, I, ironically enough, I, I got the soundtrack to um, the, uh, the musical uh, Hair. So that was, uh, <laughs> there's something really interesting about that music to me and like the way in which that, that music was composed and, and arranged. Um, and then there was a bunch of Canadian artists who you probably wouldn't have heard of, like Wax Mannequin, who is an artist that I deeply adore. Mm. Um, Jeff Berner is another important influence of mine. Fabulous, fabulous, like sort of punk klezmer accordion player. Um, and then uh, moving into my 20s, uh, I was on a backpacking trip in Europe, like a total cliche, and um, stumbled across this, this Balkan brass band playing in front of a cathedral in Antwerp. And there was something about that sound, uh, the, the music, the scales that they were using, that was deeply evocative of music that I had heard and experienced going to synagogue as a child. Mm. And I had never related those sounds and those modalities and those scales with my interest in folk music and in playing guitar and in writing. Suddenly I hear this, this performance, this live performance from this band and it just clicked of like, oh my God, I have this, this deep connection to a musical tradition that I've never even really looked at before. It always existed in a different silo. So that began a process of, of really digging into Eastern European folk music traditions and looking at styles from different regions and areas and the cross fertilization of different styles and in, in, in a, in a densely packed reason with lots of different people. Um, and I think, you know, that's, it's that process, that journey that sort of kicked off the, you know, the, the kinds of approaches that you hear on, on yeah. all my records, I think. Yeah. So going with the Eastern European things, was there a lot of, you know, theory and sitting down to learn those scales did, was it a discipline then for you to try and discover that type of thing? No, because I, I don't actually uh, read or write music. I'm technically illiterate. Um, uh, so it, for me, it was, it was all just about listening and mm. um, allowing it to, to, to be filtered through my own perceptions and then poured back out again. Cool, man. Like I was talking, like going back to Paul Simon, I was talking to my friends the other day because we were talking about um, the Disturbed cover of Sound of Silence where um, they seem to like act like they wrote it and it's really like annoying thing to see. I've seen them at a few festivals and stuff. But I went to see Art Garfunkel when he played Liverpool ages ago after he'd had like his vocal surgeries. He came back and he was talking about how brilliant a songwriter Paul Simon is and how he came around to Garfunkel's apartment one day, he sat down and played the whole of Sound of Silence in one go to him to be like, I've just written this new song. And I think about those iconic songs that someone just kind of pulled out of the ether and brought out and I, like, it always kind of baffles me that that iconic song was just played in a kitchen one night and just the idea of the actual songwriting and the principles behind it is a mesmerizing thing and it just shows how in tune a writer paul simon is sure yeah i mean i think that there's songs that i've written that are that have taken years mm. uh, where it takes a really long time to like figure out what the essence of the song is and figure out how to arrange it and how the chords should be moving and what's the right structure. And then there's songs that just that happen in an afternoon mm. and the ones that happen in the afternoon are usually way better tunes. Um, but they they just don't come that often. So you got to work mm. with like, for an example of one of your songs ride on, do you remember how that song came about or the process behind writing that song? Only very vaguely, to be honest. Um, yeah, I think I think that one was probably written in a day or two. I don't remember struggling with that one per se. Mm -hmm. I think that there was probably, I mean, the thing that I'll often do is I'll overwrite, mm -hmm. um, write more verses than I need or write more lines, more couplets, more whatever than I need, and then go back and, and, and work through it. So I'd be lying if I said I, I remembered in detail, but I, I have a, like a vague awareness of like, 
doing some editing on that tune. It's not one of those ones that just sort of came out like a, like a full, yeah. full egg, but, um, but I, that was one of the quicker ones. Mm. And then jumping from that record to old stock, which was a theater production as well. You worked with like a playwright and a director on that, which kind of ideas came first for the songwriting more? Is there a more trial and error process or bouncing ideas off process for that record? Yeah, the way that it worked was the, the director and, and co-writer of the songs called me up and asked if I wanted to make something with them. And um, <clears throat> so it was like a, there was a, a period of probably three or four months of trying to figure out what kind of a thing we wanted to make. What were the themes going to be? What was the narrative structure going to be? What was the sort of setting of the show? And I don't mean location, but I mean like, how are we going to, um, you know, bring the audience into a story and why is the story being told and all of these kinds of things. So after three or four months of workshopping and trying to write some things and then hitting ideas back and forth, in a way we had nothing to show for ourselves except for all of the things that we'd ruled out. Mm. Um, and then we decided to make a show about, about immigration and refugees. And um, once we were into that, uh, at that point, we decided we ought to collaborate with the playwright Hannah Moscovich and the ball sort of, you know, rolling down the hill even faster at that point. Um, but I didn't have the privilege of reading any of Hannah's writing of, of scenes and text of, of the, the narrative action of the play until after at least three or four songs had been written. Mm. Um, so it was just a sort of thing where we would talk about like, okay, well, what are the kinds of songs that we know we're going to need for this show? And we get to imagine, you know, the song You've Arrived, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the song You've Arrived is maybe the first one that we wrote for the show. Uh, and it was because Christian said, okay, Ben, uh, we know that at some point they're going to arrive at the pier in Canada and there's going to be some sort of arrival moment there. Maybe there should be a song for that. And um, we started off down the path. Although I should say that I very consciously thought that I didn't want to write songs that sounded like music theater. Mm. I wanted songs that weren't going to be moving the narrative forward, but that would deal more with subtext rather than text. Um, so is that I could make songs that would then translate into an album. Like I knew that I wanted to be able to tour this project through concert touring mm. and through putting out a record as well as making a play. Um, and I, you've arrived as the first song is I think the song that I accomplished that the least on. I think that song is very music theater. <laughs> and it was because I was having a difficult time imagining what the aesthetic of the piece was going to be. Um, and so as, um, as we continued to work, it became clear to me like how to write songs about the subtext of a scene and how it was all going to fit together. And as that vision became clearer to me, the, the songwriting uh, progressed. That's interesting. And you said like you had early, you know, was a hairspray one of the soundtracks you had? Was it like, did you have a musical? Theater? Not, I'll correct you. Not oh, hairspray. No, no. Hair. Oh, Very hair. different Sorry. shows. Very <laughs> different shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hair, hair is from the 60s. It's like a real hippie kind of a thing. Yeah. And with that, did you have a musical theater background or like an interest in musicals before being approached for this or to work on this? Yeah, so I had done some theater training and some theater performing uh, in my earlier years. When I was a teenager, I was really interested in theater and um, had uh, probably performed in five or six different musicals, um, yeah, including Les Mis, uh, mm. shows like Pippin, um, Bugsy Malone was a cheesy one that I was in. Um, what are some of the other shows I did? It's not coming to me now, but, um, oh, um, Into the Woods, great Stephen Sondheim show. Um, so those influences were certainly there. I had been steeped in at least a half a dozen shows. Um, I wasn't ever really one of those, like I knew in that era, a lot of music theater nerds, like people who could sing every word to the musical Rent was the big hit when I was in high school. And I like, I've never seen Rent. I've never listened to the soundtrack. I like listened to a couple of tunes and didn't really give a shit. Um, so much of that music to me is just like deeply cheesy and not interesting. But having been steeped in the aesthetic of that music and having sort of learned how that world operates, I think it gave me access to tools that a lot of people who are like doing the folk singer songwriter thing don't have in their minds. Um, and so I think, yeah, a lot of those performative aspects of the grandiosity that is often in that world um, sort of came to me quite in intuitively and automatically. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been like a, a struggle to like, you know, tone it down a little bit and make things a little simpler and gentler. That's, uh, that's been a long process for me. Cool, man. I, I definitely can hear that in like your first two albums, like don't take this in any way that's not a compliment, but I really think you have like a great Disney villain voice. If they ever needed sure. like 
a musical like number, I think you should definitely be called for a next film or something. <laughs> and there's that kind of theatricality to some of your songs and your phrasing and deliverance that just lends itself to this type of thing that when you made Old Stock, it was like you'd been kind of on that path since day one, really with that kind of mindset. But with like working with the player and stuff, was there like compromises and notes on the songs you were working on to try and not, obviously you were trying to do subtext, but was it kind of maybe an arra- arrangement kind of way? Um, no, not really. I mean, the, the, the playwright, Hannah and I, like almost never uh, worked directly with each other. Mm. Um, you know, it was mostly me and the director and, and song co-writer who were in, you know, one space working on the songs. And it was really Christian Barry. It was his role to sort of say to me, like, here's this kind of a song that I think we're going to need. Um, and at that, at that point he was, I, I'm not always a great collaborator. Like I'm, I often have like a thought in my mind that is obscure even to me. And I'm like trying to figure out what it is or what the right adjective is or what's the right word or the thing that fits into a rhythm that I have in my brain. And then when I've got somebody else in the room who's like, I, I have an idea of how to solve it. I'm like, shut up, man. I'm like, I got this, it's on the tip of my tongue. You just fucking leave me alone. Um, so in that sense, I'm not a great collaborator. Christian was really generous in creating a context for me of saying like, here's the kind of a thing that I think that we want to be going for, or here's um, a theme that I think we should be working with today that I think will fit into what Hannah's working on. Um, or, or here's the next scene that I think is going to transition into this scene. And I think we need a song in between to try to make it work. So I was getting visions of the architecture of the mm. show. Um, and then working with somebody who was able to like, give me gentle feedback and say things like, I don't know if that line is strong enough. Um, or why don't we try going in this direction and then giving me a, a pretty long leash to then explore those things creatively. And then once we got, um, I would say two thirds of the way done, maybe two thirds of the songs were written, two thirds of the scenes were written. Uh, then we got together, the three of us, as well as another couple of musicians um, to try to figure out how to fit all of the pieces together, which then revealed, okay, we're missing this kind of a scene and we're missing this kind mm. of a song. And then that was the, the final third was, was much more of a collaborative process of talking to each other and figuring out what songs were missing. Um, Truth Doesn't Live in a Book, for example, that song mm. was written in that phase of like realizing, okay, we need this pivot point in the show and how's the, how can that operate? That's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that song up because I was listening to that the other day and it's got such a like overarching meaning to it. Was that a song that was difficult to write or was that something that people collaborated with you on? Like how much of that song did you kind of fully form on your own before presenting it to the team? Um, I, I would say like 95% of it. Mm. Um, I mean, I wrote it with Christian in the room. Um, you know, it was, it was me sitting on a piano and, uh, and just sort of riffing. I mean, I think that the, the opening uh, foray into the song, that little monologue, I think was mostly written in one pass and there was maybe a couple of edits, but it was like kind of extemporaneously composed, just sort of like thinking through mm. and, you know, trying to do some like freestyle rhyming on the go. There was definitely some editing after the fact to tighten it up, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the rest of the song as well was just sort of like goofing around, you know, like always have a little bit of salt with your tequila was the first line that we wrote. And then sort of like that kind of set the tone and then down from there. Um, I don't remember what the first chorus was, but it was, it was the chorus that wasn't strong enough. Mm. Um, and I remember being, we, we were doing the, the workshopping in, in a place called Banff in the Rocky Mountains in, in Canada, in Alberta. And so we were in this like little retreat working on stuff. And I remember being there and being like, you know what, this, this chorus just isn't strong enough. And going up to this like, you know, little bedroom away from the, the it was sort of in this big house with a piano in the living room. And I remember breaking off and sitting on this like, chaise long in this weird room uh, and just like spending two or three hours um, just working on that chorus, trying to figure out the right metaphor, the right imagery and just beating my head against the wall until I found it. And then I brought it down two or three hours later. I was like, I don't know if this is done, but I think this is stronger than what we had. I'm, I don't know. Mm. And my collaborators were very generous in saying, this is great. I think this is perfect. 
Oh. Awesome. And with that kind of monologue and some of your stuff's quite rapid fire and wordy, do you use pen and paper and try and remember it? Or do you have like, because I have an app on my phone to record things that like, if I'm sat down to write, I'll normally have that recording in the background just so nothing slips. What's your kind of recording process for making sure you don't miss those type of things? Uh, it's usually pen and paper. Um, I, I do, um, I just use the voice memo app mm. on my phone um, when I'm sitting with an instrument to, to remember melodies or I'll sing a melody into my phone. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll sometimes write down whatever the chords would be above the, above the words as if I was reading it off of, you know, online chord thing. Mm. Um, and if I want to remember the voicings that I'm using or any like particular information about the chords, I'll either like dictate that to my phone or uh, while I'm playing it so that I remember how I started composing it. Mm. And with old stock being a theater production with like costume and a more of like a direction to it, you obviously had, you know, years of touring under your belt. Did you have to approach old stock on stage as a different thing to when you were playing? Was it a different mindset you went into for that? Totally. Because I mean, I'm, I'm not really exactly me when mm. I'm performing on stage as Ben Kaplan, you know, it's, it's a caricature of, of a human being. Um, and it's, it's a sort of persona that is authentic in many ways. Uh, but it's also, you know, exaggerated and enhanced in other ways. Like I would never talk to somebody on the street the way that I talk on stage. It's much more, you know, grandiose and whatever. Um, but uh, despite all of that, it's all of my banter is, is improvised. You know, like I don't prepare. I mean, there's certain jokes that I'll tell a couple of times that I'll go back to or transitions that I thought were clever that I'll try to remember. Um, but for the most part, I'm just going off of instinct and improvisatory gusto. Um, and if I want to change up the set list or if I want to drop a song or add something new, like that's all my call. And I bring the band with me and we're all sort of like, on this journey together hmm. with the theater show there's lighting cues it's <laughs> like the arrangements that are sort of timed out and the way that the music relates to the action and the way that the action relates to the lights and, and all of these different moving pieces um so it's about like rehearsing it and nailing it down and then executing hmm. and so there's still room for exploration but the exploration and the improvisation and the subtle changes are operating on a level of granularity and on mm. a scale that's much, much, much finer. And so one of the things that I struggled with moving into touring that work as extensively as I did was kind of the boredom of repeating the same exact thing over and over again, where the music isn't really changing, at least not in as big of a ways mm. as the songs change when I'm touring with my band. Certainly there've been subtle things that have shifted and adapted and changed, but it's all, it's all on a, on a, on a way different scale, much more granular. So that was challenging to adapt to, but I'll say that having performed that show now 260 times or however many redonkulous number of times <laughs> I've done that exact same thing on stage, the more times you do it, the, the more, the higher the resolution is of, of what you can analyze and be sensitive to within mm. a performance. And so that has been a great opportunity for me to grow as an artist being forced to repeat a thing so many times. I've like really learned all of the things that I can learn about those songs. And I, I, I continue to be surprised as uh, about what things I can, I can discover uh, in performing that music. That's, that's really interesting, man. I recently, like obviously Hamilton came out on Disney plus in July and that was the only reason I got Disney Plus was to give that a watch a couple of times whilst I had the free trial. And my girlfriend got me a book on it all. And it just shows how in-depth everything is. You see the music and the actors, but the stage and the lighting and the directions are at another level. And it was in the liner notes of that thing, you see where like Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jonathan Groff are talking about. They start changing lines that were obviously in the musical set in stone the way they deliver them at certain times or at different performances just gave it a new level of like interest to them and also it brought like a different like delivery to the character as well at the same time and it's a really interesting thing is with something that's repeated so many times where you just find and you know if you just tweaked one word there it was like that made it interesting for you that night Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think about like listening to bootlegs of, of, of Bob Dylan playing in the seventies and eighties and nineties and how like 
he didn't sing any of those tunes the same way twice. You know, he was constantly experimenting with phrasing and like often to the disappointment of his audience because they wanted to sing along and he's not saying it he's not singing it straight anymore. He's singing it with weird back phrasing or he's pushing this line or he's changed the chord progression ever so slightly. And, um, you know, that stuff is, is really important um, to me for mm -hmm. finding ways of yeah, keeping it fresh. And you figure out like you're in this straight jacket. And so your natural inclination is to figure out like, okay, well, where can I wiggle my elbow? You know, it's like, I can't move my arms, but I can, I can sort of get like a little thing going on over here. And so you do that and you, Sometimes you make it less strong. Sometimes you make it stronger. But um, that process of discovery is what, is what keeps it interesting. Cool, man. Going back to what you're saying about, you know, the onstage Ben Kaplan being almost an exaggeration, was that something you came to out of? Because I know for me, a lot of what I did early on was out of, you know, bravado and a false sense of confidence because I was 19 when I first started playing on stage and it was a lot of that metal, you know, kind of faking it till you make it attitude where you're trying to force an idea or a whatever and then as i've started playing on my own and being an acoustic artist it's kind of a lot of it is just what i do as normal and kind of talk as a thing but sometimes out of like a lack of confidence or if the shows are going well you start pulling on different like emotions or ideas with ben kaplan on stage was that a progression out of like confidence or a protection or was it something to try and engage with people outside of you would that was be you on you on the street i think it's all three of those things mm -hmm. i mean to, to me it's it's there's it's it really is a tightrope act because if there's no authenticity in it, it i think it gets pretty boring pretty quickly mm -hmm. um i think that especially when you're doing the sort of like acoustic thing and there's not a shitload of lights and pyrotechnics and you're 80 feet away from the audience in a stadium you know th there needs to be a human connection um, and I would argue, even if there is pyrotechnics and lights and you're 80 feet away, there still needs to be yeah. a human connection. Um, so, you know, finding access to that authenticity is, is I think really important, but I think it's really difficult because it's the most vulnerable part. So I think absolutely. When I first started getting up on stage, it was like way more of a bravado and a persona and the, like trying to do what I thought was cool. And then as you practice that, and as you do that, I, I think that you sort of whittle away at the, the bits of that that are phony. Mm. And you find the bits of that that are actually extensions of your own personality and things that you're emulating because it, it somehow resonates deeply with inside of you. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's, it's been a, a process of discovery mm. and figuring out uh, how to be authentic how to represent myself in a way that feels real, but that also is entertaining. Mm. Um, you know, Jack Nicholson has a great quote about acting where, where um, he says that, you know, all these teachers are telling you to go on stage and be real. And I don't believe in that when I'm saying, you know, when I'm playing the Joker, nothing that I do is real, but it's, interesting <laughs> and so there's like there's also a level of like figuring out what's interesting mm. and what's engaging and what pulls people along and there's something about art where you can tell the a lie and turn it into the truth mm. you know and so, so there's something about what you know fiction is different from non-fiction and that you can access a deeper truth by telling a lie and I think that there's a there's a piece of that in my stage performance of like exploring some of the elements of, of the human experience by blowing things up to a, a huge false scale and, 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 you know, telling these lies, not necessarily verbally, but, but in any sense, um, to, in order to access a, a deeper metaphorical truth about the human experience. That's really interesting, man. Like I know there's a saying where it's like, you should never believe that, what the artist is singing about happened to them. And I think that kind of, like all songs are exaggerations, like no matter what you talk about, even if it's the most honest down to earth, like country song about a small town, there's still exaggerations and mistruths. So it's interesting to see an approach that brings that into the performer on stage as well, where it's an exaggeration that doesn't shy away from the truth, but it, points to it a bit more and that's a really interesting thing was that honed over 
obviously it's like nine years or plus that you've been touring as this thing. Has there been, you know, levels of self-discovery along the way that's helped you as a writer and a performer as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly interested and curious and, and trying to figure out how to hone my craft. Um, you, you know, thinking about um, how songs are lies in certain ways, it's like, it's, it's, it's not that they're lies or that they're falsehoods. I think that I think about them as, as being filters. Mm. Uh, and if you think about like in the theater, you use these, these little pieces of, of colored cellophane. We call them gels in the theater. So you put a gel over the light. And so you've got this par can that's pointing out like, you know, whatever the color is of the, of the bulb that's being produced. And you put a pink gel over it and all, all of a sudden the light is pink. So what's, what that filter is doing, what that gel is doing is it's blocking all of the frequencies that are not pink. Mm. And so it's, it's not changing the light it's letting pass through just the frequencies that are achieving what you're trying to illustrate uh, and that are helping to to generate the vision that you want to present and so when i write a, a song that's that's personal or that it may be in some way autobiographical you know it's not that this I'm trying to achieve some sort of authenticity and find some sort of deeper truth in what I'm trying to explore what is universal about my particular circumstance. Mm. Um, but in so doing, I'm leaving out all of the color frequencies that are not pink. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm leaving out the, the parts where I was clearly the asshole and definitely brought about the demise of the relationship because of the shitty things that I, you know, it's like that, that didn't actually serve <laughs> the thing that I was trying to work on here. So I left that out. And so I, I think of it, it's, it's, it's a balancing act between um, seeking truth and, and, and authenticity, uh, but also leaving out important details that, that don't uh, work towards the goal that you have in mind. Yeah, now, That's a really interesting way to look at it. Because obviously, if you're telling a story, sometimes like the day of the week doesn't matter. And sometimes it doesn't. It's really interesting that to put it in or out is actually a choice and it's a conscious choice that you need to do and things. But going on to obviously you've done old stock and you've been playing these songs is the new record kind of a counterbalance to that. Cause you're saying it's more stripped back with the guitar being a focus. Is it like, is it the counterbalance to what you've been doing for the last few years? Totally. So I, I have a, a slowly growing batch of new songs. I'm not a particularly prolific writer. It takes me a long time to get songs finished, um, you know, except for those rare ones that happen all at once. Um, so I have chosen not to uh, push those songs into the world in this moment because I'm hearing them as being arranged for a, a sort of a larger brass ensemble. And I'm interested in trying to make something that's that's quite energetic and will be um, kind of a party to play on stage. Mm. Um, and I, I just, with the circumstances of the world right now, it was just like, well, this is the wrong moment to be workshopping that project because mm. I want to be workshopping it with other artists who are expert at the instruments that they play. I don't want to write trombone parts myself. I want to work with a trombone player to think, you know, this is my idea. How would you play this? And then mm. work in that sort of collaborative way. That's just not going to happen right now. And it's also not going to be toured right now. Like there's just no universe I can imagine in which that project can be brought into the mm. world. And so what I've chosen to do instead, because I need to keep working and figure out a new way of, of engaging with my audience and, and developing my own craft, is I've chosen to go back to my last three records and think through a best of album. But instead of just taking those songs and re-releasing them, which has no possible value in the hmm. age of Spotify, um, I'm, I'm taking them and, and reimagining them as stripped back solo acoustic tunes and figuring out what is the way that the artist that I am now can reapproach in a more sensitive way, the songs that I've already released. Interesting. Is there any songs that stand out to you from those that you've picked that have taken on a new meaning or evolved from your initial time of like writing, recording and performing for the new record? Yeah. Um, I mean, the one that's maybe closest to finished right now, it's I mean, doing this, I've, I, my original vision was to like, 
whenever I'm playing a show, a solo show, which has been less and less over the last 10 years, I'll often get people coming up to me and saying, you know, the band is super cool, but my favorite version of your music is when it's solo. Or I love that version of Down to the River, You in the Park, or Birds with Broken Wings in Germany. And, and people have told me that they really appreciate that solo stuff. And so I thought like, great, I'll just do what I do. And I'll go into the studio and I'll play the song the way that I've already played it a, a thousand times. And we'll put it out and people will have that record that they've been asking for. And then once I started to do that and listen back to the music, I thought like, yeah, this is interesting to watch, but I don't know if I want to put this on in headphones and, and, or, or, mm. or, and walk down the street to it. I don't know if I want to listen to this while I'm cooking dinner. And I think that's the kind of record that I want to make. I want to make, I think the medium is so important. And so through a visual medium of YouTube, there's a way of performing the song that I think can really work. But once you've cut away all visual information and all you're left with is the music, I don't know if that, was, if that is the right approach to those songs. So I chose to then try to figure out what are other ways that I can think about these songs? What are other ways that I can use my voice and use my instruments and think about remaking the song? And so one of the first ones that I, I feel like I found a, a really strong way into is the song Beautiful off of mm. um, In the Time of the Great Remembering. And then that one, it's sort of like, when I recorded it, it's sort of got this kind of like vaudeville kind of energy and the wood blocks and the banjo, and it's kind of a little bit hokey and high energy and there's a fucking lute solo in it for some reason, because <laughs> Morris is cool, whatever. Um, and I, I realized like, oh, actually this is a love song that I wrote about being like, heartbroken and trying to like make a plea of like, you know, why don't we give this thing a shot, even though you're pretty convinced that it's not going to work out. Um, and so I tried singing it that way. I tried finding a way into that song that was much more vulnerable. And when I got into the parts of my voice that are a higher register, you know, my instinct is to sort of like push it out and it gets bigger and I can do this sort of full throated, high octane, high octave situation. And that wasn't working with this arrangement. So suddenly I was flipping into a falsetto instead to hit those same notes. And it turned into this much more vulnerable, much more intimate um, song. And so that was a, a, a you know, it, it totally transforms what the song is for me and made it interesting to me in a way that it was starting to get boring because it's a 12 year old song. Well, man, no, that's really like interesting and with, that song, do you say you're like a third of the way through? When do you reckon that record will be out? Will it be this year or? Definitely not this year. Um, and I'm actually, I'm on the road right now. I, I took a trip to um, a more central part of Canada, Ontario, where there's a much higher caseload and doing any sort of collaborative work is impossible. Um, so uh, I'm on pause on that pro project right now. Um, but the, the intention is to, or I'm actually not, not exactly pause because I'm continuing to do pre-production and that personal discovery of this mm. music and continuing to work through these songs. Um, but my intention is to get it out by early March of 2021. And I've, I've got um, some touring booked actually in the UK in March of 2021. We'll see if that actually happens. The, the dates are all booked. It's not been announced yet because we don't know if it's going to happen. That's sort of going to depend on yeah. Boris and the rest of you getting your yeah. shit together and making well, it possible for me to get over there. Well, I didn't know you were going to be touring in March, so I will personally seal every single person in their own house <laughs> if it means you can get over to here in March because that'll be awesome. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind just shutting down the British economy <laughs> so that I can work in the first quarter of 2021, I would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. don't know, 100%, the, like, off on a tangent, the, there was a cartoon in some newspaper, I think, lately, and it was like just a pile of bodies, but I'm Boris standing in front of him being like, but thank God the economy is okay. Yeah, yeah it's pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. But with, you're on a break now, but I've seen on Facebook things, you've been doing some solo shows. Like at the moment, has that been fun? And have you been reassessing that material live on stage to like that audience that you've been playing with for, in front of? Absolutely. And, and that's part and parcel with this recording project as well. It's me recognizing that I'm not going to be on stage with a band for at least another year if I'm on stage at all. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. So one is the fact that most of the musicians that I work with don't live in the same city as me. So any touring project relies on being already of a certain scale where we're flying to a place and having two or three days of pre-pro to rehearse the material and get ready for the tour. So, you know, that money is just not on the table anymore mm. because venues are all struggling to get by and fans are not going out to see live music. 
So any shows that are happening are socially distant, which means the capacity of a 200 person room is now down to 50 people. You can bring the ticket price up a little bit, but you're still not dealing with the same margins. Mm. So it's just, I'm not hiring session players or bandmates or whatever to earn a living wage to come on tour with me. Cause that's, that's how I roll. I try to pay mm. people a living wage. So that's just impossible. So um, it's now become clear that solo is, is how it's going to be. And so, yeah, every show is, is an opportunity for me to, dig into the material, work on some new covers, find ways of, of, of tapping into the songs in ways that are interesting to me mm. as an artist who's always trying to grow. Cool, man. And what covers are you looking at doing and what have you been playing like recently? Um, yeah, I've been doing, there's a few Tom Waits tunes that I've been covering. I mean, I didn't, he didn't come up in my influences earlier, but he's definitely a major inspiration and influence of mine. Um, the way that he uses language um, is really important to me. Mm. Uh, his use of imagery and his way of painting a scene rather than telling a scene. Um, yeah, so uh, there's a few Tom Waits tunes. Um, been covering, uh, doing an Elliot Smith tune, um, which is like so not my usual um, well to drink from, but he's got, he's got a great tune that I've been using. Um, what else have I been covering? Um, a couple of Dylan songs. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm really revisiting a lot of stuff that is important early influences of mine um, and songs that I sort of like already deeply know and just didn't necessarily know the chords to. Um, but I'm now starting to explore and I, I can't actually even think of anything off the top of my head, but I've been, I've got a bit of a list going of more contemporary stuff that I'm trying to learn. Oh, Man Man has a tune uh, that, I'm, that I'm thinking about trying to learn. Uh, Man Man is a great, great band. Oh, cool. um, yeah, so it's just like a, it's an ongoing process of like trying to balance my time between working on my own new stuff and then going back to this thing that I did so often as a, as a younger artist of like learning the craft of songwriting and performing by, you know, digesting the material of, mm. of, of other great artists. Yeah, no, that's an amazing thing to do. And what you were talking about engaging audience and stuff, you started the... Um, talk it out podcast on youtube i think it's like five episodes in now was yeah go ahead was that because of the pandemic or like did you have that idea before everything started going into lockdown as way because i started this podcast in march i started recording everything in february just so i had some back episodes so i could put it out and then obviously the world ended so because i couldn't gig or do what i needed to do this has kind of been my lifeline to keep creating and keep producing things that can engage people was that on your kind of radar or when you started doing talk out um yeah i think like i probably not probably i definitely listen to way more podcasts than i listen to music um and i've been interested and been fantasizing about making a podcast for a really long time talk it out uh was for me like definitely a thing that started after the pandemic uh and the pandemic was a, was a thing that, yeah, like pushed me to like, okay, well, n none of this other stuff is keeping you busy anymore. So you finally got time to learn this new ecosystem. And um, I chose to start by putting it out as a live YouTube thing because it felt to me like editing is a process that I really dislike. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so doing it live and doing it with visual content and doing it via YouTube rather than RSS feed into podcast streaming, whatever apps felt like a lower stakes way of doing some learning and development. Mm. Um, and so the, I actually, I created six episodes, the sixth one, the audio didn't track. Um, which was just such a bummer because it was maybe my favorite conversation. Uh. Um, but it was like, and partially because of the disappointment of that audio not tracking and partially because uh, I think I figured out kind of what I had set out to learn. Mm. I stopped doing the, the YouTube things and decided to pull back, reassess, refigure out the, 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 the structure and the format, do that work personally, and then relaunch it uh, in the new year as a, as a full-fledged podcast. So that's a process I'm engaged in now. And I'm just in the middle now of trying to put together a Patreon package, Patreon situation. And I'm actually working with a production company that's going to actually do the whatever editing and stuff like that to get the thing packaged and distributed for me. Because I, I just know that if I'm doing it myself, it's just not going to happen and it won't happen to the quality that I mm. aspire to. So I'm going to, I've decided to risk a little bit of capital to get it up and online 
the way that I want it to come out. And then hopefully my fans will, will meet me and support the work with some dollar bills. And if not, you know, I've made a commitment to make 10 episodes. And if it's a, a money losing venture after that, then I'll, you know, pull the plug and try something else. But that's, uh, that's where I'm at with it now. That's good, man. That's really interesting. And the one thing I've kind of been not necessarily surprised at was podcast is such an interesting format. And I kind of took my lead from like the LA comic scene where I was influenced for podcasts by like Bear Kreischer and Tom Segura and those type of podcasts. And it was surprising how little musicians are actually in the podcast game at the moment from what I've seen or tried to listen to. There's been like Chris Shiflett with Walk on the Floor and Joe Pug, but considering how in between songs musicians are such storytellers and in songs they're storytellers to not have these people doing podcasts is kind of a shame i think so i'm super stoked that you're gonna be bringing one out i'll definitely be listening to that one but do you think there's like well do you think there's more of a market for musicians to do this because i think especially during the pandemic it's such a great way to engage with people that is necessarily overlooked Sure. I mean, there's a cliche that everybody has a podcast. Mm. Um, and it is, it's true that the, the marketplace is really dense. I mean, there are thousands of podcasts and it's so hard to even make a podcast that will be discoverable yeah. if even the people are looking for it uh, because the market's so slammed right now. Um, but I think that's a great thing. I think that, you know, it's, it's great for, for people who want to listen to podcasts because there's a lot out there. Um, but it's also difficult to navigate it and to make something that can be discovered. So yeah, I, I think that you're right that there's probably uh, way less musicians and songwriters who are out there doing that thing than we see in the comedy world and things like that. And I, I think that it would be a great thing to have more of that stuff out there. Yeah. Cause that's one of your things. Cause I remember some of your YouTube content was really fun. Like I remember you did the, like the bed, tour like you did the map where you were circling things and stuff has that mm -hmm. been like a conscious thing to engage with people that you know i think again it's a lot of musicians kind of either shy away from or don't think of was that something you consciously wanted to do with that type of like content yeah totally i mean my my thing is like i'm not i'm not great at visual uh storytelling and at video production and audio production. It's just never been the thing that I've, I've really intuitively jived with or, or had um, uh, excellence at achieving. Um, so I, I almost always with those kinds of things, I'm working with another artist who's getting paid to support the thing that I want to bring into the world. So those things are able to happen in the moments where I have like arts council funding or yeah. a government grant or money from a label to support a release. So that, you know, that birds tour project happened because I think I had a folder of like, you know, 2000 bucks or something like that, that I could spend on some mm. video production. Oh, cool. And so hired my friends to, to put that stuff together with some collaborative conversations about what it would look like. Um, and I have done less of that stuff than I would like, but that's just because I don't always have money to pay artists to mm. support me. So, um, you know, now I'm in this, uh, this moment of like realizing that having put a huge emphasis in my career on live performance, that has basically entirely gone away. Mm. And so now it's an opportunity for me to actually very intentionally figure out how to make the economy of other kinds of media work. Yeah, that's completely the same wavelength I've been on where it's like if gigs, which I've been doing, you know, consistently for about four years has gone, what can you do then? And the podcast and I'm looking at video things to just try and it's, you know, you don't want to say stay relevant, but it's to stay at the forefront of people's minds because you can just slip away easily from, you know, a Spotify shuffle can just like get rid of you on someone's playlist. It's a really difficult thing to do without touring. You say you've got hopefully UK dates next year. Is this like with your approach to touring, was it in the initial stages, was it all independent touring or have you had help? getting those dates booked in as you started like growing? Oh uh, yeah, I work, I work with a booking agent. Um, and that was one of the first pieces of, of my team uh, really that I, that I have leveraged to be able to become an international artist is, is having good agent partners. And it's something mm -hmm. that I just have been very fortunate to have been able to find pe those people. 
Um, so there was a, you know, I think that, that the tour that I'm, you know, may or may not be doing in March was actually originally booked for November. Hmm. Um, and that was something that we started looking at in like May or March, or, or let's say April or May was like, okay, cool. So the whole world is shut down, but maybe things will be better by November. Let's take a look and just put hmm. some holds out and see what venues are doing. And then that obviously got canceled, uh, probably two months ago, officially two and a half, three months ago. But even before that tour got canceled, we were like starting to ask about avails and putting hmm. feelers out for Q2 or Q1 2021, which is how people talk in that world. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and now we're, we're having conversations uh, around what does it look like to move this to the fourth quarter of 2021 or the first quarter of 2022. So we'll see. It's, it's, um, I'm not holding my breath. You know, I, I also had a tour of the Balkans that was scheduled for October of, of this past year and then got moved to um, November of this year after the UK. And then obviously that's not happening. Mm. So um, that's also being looked at. That's already, that's been moved into 2022. Um, so we'll see, you know, it's like, there's no telling, um, how long this thing is going to last and what the rollout will be of the vaccine and how effective all of that is and what it actually means for us. I'm trying to stay on top of the ball so that all of the holds and all of the venues are not mm. booked up when I am ready to go back on the road. Um, but I don't honestly anticipate that any of those plans will actually come to fruition. I'm just sort of planning as if it, it will happen, but living as if it won't. Yeah, I think that's the best kind of way to be at the moment. It's just such a thing because I've been looking at booking tours and stuff and with the UK, like the arts and the venues didn't get funded properly or funded at all. So a lot of venues have been left high and dry. So it's now it's even if I book a show there, will that venue even be there when it comes time to tour? And it's yeah. really just like interesting and difficult state of play and it's such it makes such like going over to digital and trying to engage with people such an important thing to do but going back to actually touring was there anything from like the birds tour or when you've taught extensively like the lessons you've took away that you've consistently applied to future tours and future dates it's interesting um i mean definitely thousands of things i mean it's hard it's hard to like figure out what all of them are though I mean, a lot of it's like logistical stuff. Mm. Like, um, like when, when you have a long drive day, don't sleep in the city that you're playing in. Mm. Um, if you got a long drive the next day, get an hour out of town and sleep at the cheaper roadside motel. Um, you know, those are things that I've learned along the way. Um, um, the, the kinds of things that like the snacks and the meals that get eaten on tour has become like, I have a, a deep awareness of the importance of that. Like I make sure I eat a lot of greens every day. Mm. Um, I'm not a strict vegetarian, but I try to eat more as a vegetarian when I'm on tour, just to try to like, make sure that I'm treating my body right. Um, figuring out the structure and the schedule of a day to make sure that I can like have nine hours scheduled to be in a bed so that I can actually sleep for eight hours. Um, which doesn't always happen, but I've learned that in order for my voice to be tip top on shape every night, that's the most important yeah. variable. Shitload of water is also really important, but, but the sleep is the biggest thing. Um, and in terms of like being on stage, it's all, it's all so subtle. Like I don't, I don't know if I know how to talk about what those lessons are. Mm. Yeah. No, it's a really interesting thing. I was talking to my mate the other day because I've got saying stories for songs and stuff and I was joking and it's, partly true that the further away i get from home the more graphic and heinous those stories become because i'm a hundred percent sure that like they're less likely to get back to my mom and dad yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> so someone in netherlands knows a completely different story to when i'm playing at home for and it's a, an intro to a song but we're hitting up to the hour mark and i don't want to take up too much of your time for today but um you've got the album you're working on at the moment and you're currently doing some solo, sh solo shows. Do you have any projects that you're working on as well throughout that? So you've got the podcast and the solo shows, the album. Is there anything else that you're coming up for for 2021, 20, 22? Uh, there's like one or two other little things that I'm working on. Um, one of them is a, is a potential new theater production. Um, and the other one is not something that I'm ready to talk about mm. yet. So yeah. But I've got, I've got irons in a number of different yeah. fires right now. Cool. And with the theater production for the future, was that, is it your own production that after you've seen with old stock, is this something you're driving forward ahead with like your own vision and script or? 
Not at all. No, no. It's, it's going to be something working with the same team. Oh, from awesome. Old with, yeah, yeah, Christian Berry and Hannah Moskovich. Uh, they're two artists that I, I deeply admire and respect and felt very lucky to work with the first time. So the three of us have decided to get together and try to make a new thing together again. Oh, amazing, man. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Um, yeah, thank you so much for um, talking to me today. It's been a really honor. And I, I hope you get here in March. And if you're not, um, whenever you're in the UK, I'd love to sit down and have a chat to you again, if that's cool. Absolutely. That sounds great. Cool, man. Thanks for the call. And there we have it, folks. That's episode 18 of Into the Van, Into the Back. I really hope you enjoyed this. Please go check out Ben Kaplan's music. He is a phenomenal songwriter, a really interesting guy, and his voice is something that you really need to have on your playlists and in your rotation because it's just an undeniable talent. So I hope you dig this chat. I hope you dig the next life i hope you dig beds with broken wings and you know all of his albums and yeah just keep supporting independent original music and supporting artists and creators and you know i hope whatever project you're doing you're throwing yourself into it with enthusiasm and until next time guys peace